you need to stay hungry. You need to be a little bit behind and you need to have someone ahead of you that you can chase down, but don't catch them. <laughs> so that's how I stay motivated because I know I've been doing this for 25 years, but there needs to be some sort of motivation every time. And I need to like compete with ghosts or something. <laughs> that was Huskmit Noun, and this is Nordic Portraits. Huskmit Naun, or in English, Remember My Name, is not just Denmark's most famous street artist. He has also carved out a successful career in the art world, with his work on canvas and paper, sculpture, large-scale installations and art books. In spite of his seemingly limitless use of different mediums, his work maintains a consistent, playful, observational tone, always with a strong social conscience. Huskmit Naun, welcome to Nordic Portraits. Thank you very much. I wanted to start with probably the most obvious question, addressing the elephant in the room, and that is, what led you to start working anonymously under a pseudonym? Yeah, because I've always been anonymous. I, most people are anonymous. If you walk down on the street, you've never seen them before, you don't know who they are. And uh, that's how I grew up also, and also before I started to paint graffiti. I started to paint graffiti when I was 17, in the early 90s. And when you paint graffiti illegally on the street, it's like part of the job not to use your real name, because if you do, the police knows who you are. And uh, around 2000, I started to do other things on the street that was more like art related, or I started to experiment by making stuff that wasn't, I didn't paint just letters on the street. I also did characters and other types of projects. And then I was thinking about, okay, should I use my real name here? Or, And then I thought about it, and then I was like, okay, it's kind of like a nice way to work that I can only concentrate on drawing. I don't need to use my real face or a real name because I just show my drawings. So then I continued just to be anonymous. And it works really well because when I'm off from work, when I go home, I'm not like a known face when I go to the supermarket and people stare at you and they're like, where do I know him from? Because sometimes people are not like, oh, he's famous. They're more like, oh, did I go to school with him? Or <laughs> does he know my little sister or something like that? They can't really figure out where they've seen you before. And I'm just avoiding all that because fame is just uh, annoying, that part of it. There is also a good side of it because you can make a living of what you love doing. But if people come up to you and say all sorts of things like, ah, oh, I love your work or I hate your work, and then you have to deal with that. You think a lot about it afterwards. And also I make a living of staring at the world or portraying the world, drawing stuff around me. And if the whole world is looking back at me in a funny way, then I don't see like the real surroundings. I just like, everyone's behaving really weird. I'm going to draw that and people can't relate to what I'm drawing. So I try to stay out of that and just uh, be myself. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty relaxing. I mean, it's interesting though, because there are quite a few others that have 
started in a similar vein, but have then decided to perhaps reveal themselves. I can only put down to the fact that they wanted to step out from being behind that mask, but that's never been a temptation for you? No, I I think people have different motivations when they decide not to be anonymous anymore. Some people think that, okay, it's difficult because uh, I go to a lot of meetings and uh, sometimes you run into problems where you have to use your real name and you have to come up with some sort of new solution. And there is also the artist where they haven't gotten a lot of attention (laughs) for a few weeks or something like that. And then they're like, oh, by the way, my name is blah, blah, blah. And then everyone on Instagram is like, oh, wow, you look really nice or you don't or whatever. But that's going to fade out within five minutes. It's just like a quick fix. And uh, I sometimes meet people who know who I am. People point me out and it's like, oh yeah, that's that's the guy over there. And they come up to me. So I, I feel it once in a while, like people come up to me and say, oh yeah, I like what you do. And sometimes people are very, I appreciate it, but people can be very overwhelming. <laughs> and it's a very strange situation when they know a lot about me or they think they know something about me and I don't know anything about them. So it's like a, really a one-way conversation. They say a lot to me, and I'm just like, okay, okay, it's it's great, and, and but it's sometimes it's just a little bit too much. <laughs> uh, don't get it wrong; I like that people like what I do, but sometimes when you get a lot of positive feedback all at once, it can uh, it can be very hard to cope with. <laughs> sure, I mean, how does it work in your social situation? Because presumably your close friends would know what you do, but yeah, yeah, we have this perception that artists are just on 24-7. Do you like to have then some definition in your life? And obviously, you've also got children, so when you're with them, that you're able to kind of separate and keep a work-life balance? Well, in the beginning, yes. In the beginning, I had a job that everyone has right now. In the beginning, I was like, okay, I'm an artist. I also get out ideas when I'm not at the studio. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, but you're bringing home work and shit. But now everyone is sitting on their sofa in the evening. They're pretending to watch TV, but they're reading their work email. So everyone lives in that reality now. And I've worked in that kind of reality for like 25 years. So I actually know a little bit about separating it. And I can say, okay, I'm not working now. I, I left my sketchbook at home. And it can be hard, but it's, uh, I think it's, it's like a common thing right now to work that way. Yeah, and you clearly observe it a lot in your art. Yeah, yeah. I like to produce a lot of drawings. I like to work fast. And uh, some people like to work on the same painting for months. And I like to, the the best feeling I can have is when I leave the studio in the afternoon, I can turn around and I can see like five finished drawings. And I can say, okay, I did that today. And then I can go home. When you work with a computer, you don't turn around and say, I answered hundred emails today it's it's very hard to grasp so that's a really good feeling but because i produce so many drawings i have to find a big source of inspiration where i can just gain a lot of inspiration from all the time and the nearest place to get inspiration from is from the nearest surroundings just looking at your children looking at people on the street and um, i try to spend a lot of time thinking about situations that i imagine most people can relate to even if they haven't tried it they've probably heard about it or they've seen it or and the world is getting smaller every day even if we have corona we're not allowed to go anywhere people are on the same three apps people wear the same clothes they 
listen to the same music, see the same stuff on Netflix. So whenever I do something about that kind of world, people can also relate to it in South Africa or in the desert or in, I mean, seen from a different perspective, it's more boring because you can never tell if people are from Barcelona or from Norway. It's kind of like the same thing, but it's a lot easier to make artworks about stuff that everyone can relate to. Does that still surprise you? Because you manage to maintain a very local feel to your work, yeah. yet it has these universal themes. Does it not still surprise you when you get random mails from around the world with people who are in love with that particular aspect? Mm, not really. I mean, I try to paint the clothes that we have here. I know that it's sort of like Scandinavian feel because my art is not very uptight. It's pretty relaxed. But if I think about a human in Africa, if, if I punch myself in the face and I've, if a guy in Africa punch himself in the face, it hurts the same way. Hmm. <laughs> so I can imagine if you live in some small house, wherever, and you can't find your socks and you spend your whole morning looking for your socks, and you can have the same problem if you live in a big mansion somewhere or whatever. There are all these tiny situations you can be afraid of taking the elevator when you're rich or you're poor mm. so try to find these situations and that's sort of like one part of the stuff that i do it's mainly when i do paintings i try to picture these uh, situations and then i have because i like to draw a lot sometimes i also just draw a rabbit or just as an exercise or because i'm like okay i've been spending a lot of time on the computer i need to do something and then I just draw an elephant. Can you sense? <laughs> <laughs> can you sense that it's like a muscle that you need to keep exercising? Yeah, it is because it's like if you're a professional tennis player, you need to go and play tennis every day. I mean, I'm sure they spent most of their time going from the hotel to the stadium and making interviews and doing all sorts of things that isn't really actually playing tennis. But if they want to win a tournament, they have to go out early in the morning or whatever and play like five hours of tennis. And I'm doing the same thing when I get home in the evening. And I'm like, okay, I, I was at work for seven hours. I spent two hours drawing the rest of the time. God knows what I did. But And then I'm like, okay, when the kids are sleeping, I, I make another drawing. When you make a living as an artist, it's like any other thing. It's a lot about money. You need to pay the rent and all these things. And then it's nice once in a while just to make drawings that you know that you cannot sell because I like folded them or did something with them that you could never frame the drawing or you made them with really bad markers or something like that. So I intentionally do those kind of drawings so I know that I cannot sell them. So I know that they're just for the joy of drawing and it's the same thing when I go and paint graffiti every now and then. I could never make money off doing that. It's just a way to hang out with my friends or paint a big wall. And So I try to maintain some joy in my work life. Or else it would just be like, okay, you have a show and you need to produce whatever, 10 paintings and 15 drawings, and this is the deadline. And when you finish that show, you have another show. And after, it can be fun for five years, but after... 20 years, you're just like, oh, this feels like a regular job. That was not the idea from the beginning. Mm. So you need to have all these side projects where you just draw. Well, you talk about the joy of drawing and the joy of graffiti and so forth. Uh, yeah. I wanted to go right back to the start. Can you remember when you first 
found drawing as a passion when you were a small child? Um, I remember the first drawings I made. They were of like space, spacemen, aliens. My dad worked at the postal service, and they could get some like free paper. He brought home some paper, really bad quality, but it was free. So, and he was into cartoons. So sometimes he brought home secondhand cartoons. I think that was the way I got introduced to drawing, but none of my parents did any art kind of thing and no one in my family. So I had no idea about, like, I didn't know that it could be a career or anything. I just enjoy to draw. And then I think when you go to school and you're a kid, everyone plays their part. Like that's the funny guy. That's the guy who's good at football. That's the pretty girl. That's the whatever and I was the guy who could sit and draw. It was a good way of hiding when class was boring. You could draw on the table. I think that was it. But it was it was a thing, but it was not like my whole life. But I think I spent a lot of time in my room alone. And I think the, the reason why I like to draw is that it's a world that you can control. And, and the world is getting more and more confusing. It's not getting easier as you get old. You don't know shit about anything. And uh, as soon as I have like a piece of paper, even though that I know that I'm not the best person on the planet to draw a certain animal or whatever, I can do something that I'm satisfied with. And that's just like a pause from everything else. And also when you're a kid, drawing is such an easy way to create big universes. You don't need to buy a lot of Lego or have expensive toys or anything. You just need to pencil and a piece of paper and you can draw all of it you can draw the whole universe you can draw a big castle you can draw a big army you can draw the things that you can't afford or your parents can't afford it's a way of playing and uh, also like hiding from the world (laughs) so when i sit in my studio it's sort of just like sitting in my room when i was eight years old i don't need to deal with a lot of things i I just sit there and I have a lot of deadlines and the things that other people also have, but I also have some freedom. I can decide for myself what I want to draw. I can say, okay, I I know in advance, if it's an exhibition, I know how big the wall is. You need to fill out this wall. You need to do something that we can sell or else you are going to go out of business and the gallery is going to go out of business. But besides that, I can decide what I want to do. And then I have some knowledge about what people want to buy. And then I can choose to ignore it or I can choose to walk down that path and say, okay, I'm going to give you what you want. <laughs> you want whatever. <laughs> I'm going to do some of that, but I'm also going to do some of this. Um, and that's uh, the freedom of the job, I think. So from being in your bedroom, drawing frantically. Yeah. <laughs> How did that then move out onto the streets of Copenhagen in the early 90s? Um, well, I was in my room my whole childhood. I think I was in the garden also once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Bit of vitamin D. Sounds like an Austrian childhood. but <laughs> uh, No, uh, I was allowed to go outside. I had a fairly normal childhood. It was a, it was a good childhood. But there was a lot of graffiti in the suburb where I grew up, and I watched that, and I was like, whoa, very fascinated with it. But I never started to paint because I didn't know anyone. I didn't know where to buy the paint, how to do it, no nothing. 
Most graffiti writers started because they have a cousin or they went to class with one who knew a little bit and then they moved on from there. But I didn't know anyone. So when I was 16, 17, 16, something like that, I just went to the local supermarket. I had found an old factory. I bought a couple of spray cans and I went to this old factory and I didn't know what, uh, how to paint graffiti. I just started and I had didn't bring enough spray paint so it looked completely like a mess but then I had started and then I just bought some more spray paint and uh, practiced in a nearby tunnel once in a while and it looked like shit for many many years actually I think almost four years went by before I met another graffiti writer and I was like a lone wolf wow and (laughs) sometimes I bumped into somebody but I didn't really speak much with them if there was like a legal graffiti wall, you could walk up to people and you could just say, oh, yeah, I paint too. And they said, oh, yeah, I write this and I write that. And, but not much communication. But after four years, I actually met someone who could tell me, oh, yeah, you need to go there and buy the spray paint. This is how you do You don't use that cap on top of the spray paint. You All of these things. And I had spent like four years trying to figure out how to do it and they could tell me in like two seconds how to do it and and I never figure it out and usually whenever I start doing something and I can sense that I'm not really good at it I give up I'm like okay I'll move on to the next thing but with this thing here I just kept on going so I was never a talent or anything <laughs> but I also think that's the motivation of the whole thing my main goal is never to be there are like two things like I've always had a pretty hard time dealing with not being the best. I used to play basketball and I really sucked at it. So I gave up. And with drawing, I was also like, uh, I found out, okay, if I become an artist, you can do whatever you like. So if I do these kind of drawings that no one else does, then I can tell myself that I'm the best at doing them because no one else is doing them. (laughs) So I'm the only one playing this game. And then I can sort of relax. I needed to tell myself that all the time because I was putting pressure on myself and I didn't know what to do or anything. So that was like one thing. I'm playing a game where I'm the only one playing it. I'm not competing with anyone else but myself. And then there is the, and this sounds like a contradiction and it probably is. Then I'm always aiming towards becoming the second best of drawing because I want somebody to be ahead of me that I can chase. It's never the goal to be the best because I've seen so many artists who are like the best at what they do. I have the most success and they're the richest artists or they travel all over the world and they become lazy or they start to make the same thing all over again, like do the same thing, like the same painting every time because that's what people want. And then they become sloppy. They do a bad exhibition and people are like, oh, you're fantastic. And then they become confused because they're like, well, oh, for a second I thought it was a bad exhibition, but now everyone tells me that it's good. <laughs> and it was pretty easy to make because I made it when I was drunk and in five minutes. So I'm going to do that one more time. And then they continue to do that. So it's a trap. You need to stay hungry. You need to be a little bit behind and you need to have someone ahead of you that you can chase down. But don't catch them. <laughs> so that's how I stay motivated because I know I've been doing this for 25 years, but there needs to be some sort of motivation every time. And I need to like compete with 
ghosts or something. <laughs> but what you say sounds very isolating in, yeah. in many ways. I mean, has there been a time in your career where you've sought collaboration or you've had the opportunity and how have you experienced that? Well, I work with a lot of people. Mm. Everyone is isolated within their own little life. But I do a lot of group shows, I work with galleries, I, I do a lot of collaborations. So I cannot have my will all the time. I'm not telling everyone, like, it's my way or the highway. I'm actually working with people and trying to come up with something that everyone likes. And then sometimes when you do, like, an exhibition, you can do the kind of paintings you want. But you also know that if you work too freely, you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, man, I... I want to paint a heart surgery or something like that. Then you also know that you can make one show with paintings of heart surgeries. No one's going to buy it. You're not going to get invited to do another show. So you know it's going to be your last show at the gallery. So you know in the back of your mind, you have to do something that actually sells. It's kind of like the sad truth because... Most people think that if you're an artist, you wake up, you drink a beer, you smoke some weed, you have a new girlfriend, you don't know her name, you paint with your penis, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of myths around the whole art life. And sometimes you want to tap into that. You want to play along a little bit. Like when I have people at my studio, I don't clean up. Because if people came into like a completely clean studio, they would be disappointed. It's like, is he not doing anything? Is he like spending his time cleaning up his studio? It's kind of like almost emptying the trash can out <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, because that's what people expect. And it's stupid, but it's also funny. And I'm like, okay, I can do that. No problem. Um, but I'm very, very organized. I have a very organized work day. I answer my emails. I do all these things. And that's basically also the secret behind that I have like a long art career already. And that's because I'm organized. But people want to hear the other story. <laughs> and you have artists who actually live that life, but their career is like two years. And then they sit at some pub the next 25 years. So if you want to stay in the game, you need to, approach the job like if you were an architect uh, i think that's like a, a secret behind actually creating your own job is to uh, also embrace all the boring stuff the things that you're like no no i'm only in it because i want to paint and that's what i'm gonna do all day but it's like yeah but you also need to promote your stuff you need to make it visible you need to be kind to people you need to uh, pick up the phone once in a while and if you do that it makes everything more easy. And in the end, you actually also get more time to do the actual drawing. Because if you only want to paint, then in the end, you end up having to also get a job at the supermarket. Because if nobody knows that you're making paintings, you can't sell them. Mm. Was there a distinct moment that you can remember where you felt that you had reached that level where, okay, I can make a living from this? Was there a moment or was it just such a gradual progression uh, well actually there was i was pushed to uh, taking that decision because i was uh, in denmark we have a system called dalping what do you want what do you think it's called <laughs> yeah it's essentially the doll or it's yeah, um, something like that yeah you could have it for like a certain amount of years and i was like okay i can get this money now i can do stuff on the street while i get this money i don't have to think about selling anything 
And then I just hope after two or three years that I can make a living somehow. And I had no idea about how I, but I just tried to relax and take the time and just say, I'm going to see how, where this is going to take me. If I do a lot of stuff out on the street and some other places, but they're not for sale, but I'm just going to make my stuff visible and then I'm going to see where it ends. And then after three years, I couldn't be on the dole anymore, but somebody hired me to paint a mural and I had enough money for two or three months, something like that. And then I'm like, okay, this is it. And I had absolutely no idea how I was going to get the next money. But somehow I made it and then I then I was professional. <laughs> but but that interests me a lot when you talk about the scene that you were in in the early to mid 90s yeah. doing street art. Yeah. You already seem to have had a very clear vision of what you wanted to do. The fact that you wanted to go on with your art. And what yeah. interests me there is that it didn't really seem like there was any blueprint for a career in art from that world at that time. No, there wasn't. So it was also I didn't know where it was going to end and it hasn't really ended yet, but I could look at the people around me and I could see that they were just like, okay, today I want to go out and paint a, a small rabbit and tomorrow I want to go to a party. And it was not very organized. And uh, as soon as I started to draw a lot, I was like, this is what I want to do. I need to figure out how I can stay in the game. I need to look at what other people are doing, what is working, what is not working. I heard that the reason why you can't remember any jokes uh, you hear a lot of jokes, you can never remember them. But if you want to remember a joke, you need to tell it to somebody else really quickly after you heard it, and then you can remember it. That's the trick. So I needed to get people to talk about the things that I did in order for them to remember it. And then I saw what my friends were doing out on the street. None of them signed what they were doing. It was all anonymous. It was just like, today I'm going to paint this, tomorrow I'm going to paint something else. And I was like, okay, if I sign it, if I come up with some name and then I came up with Who's Me Now and I signed everything, then people were like, oh yeah, have you seen that? And then they didn't have to explain what they saw. Have you seen that red horse with the funny hat? They could just say, have you seen that Who's Me Now poster? And then it sort of spread from there. And then People thought that I had made everything out on the street because that was the only name they knew. So I had different kind of tactics how to make things organized. And then I looked back at art history. I didn't know a lot about it, but I could see that every time that there was a new movement in Denmark, there would be two or three, four artists from every movement that could actually make a living. And then there would be some other like prolific artists from those movements, but they would just like disappear and you didn't know where they went. Perhaps they still made a living of making art, but they weren't that famous or they couldn't afford like a, a real flat. They still live in a shack or something. So I was like, okay, I could see when we started to make what we called, we didn't really call it anything, but then they, at some point it was called street art, but I could see this is a new movement. This is a new wave. People were really interested in it for a couple of years. And I was like, this is the wave that I'm going to ride and I'm going to be one of the people in this movement that are going to survive the movement. And I also thought in order to make a career out of this, I also have to evolve. I have to do other things. I have to do indoor exhibitions. I have to spread it out. I started to make a cartoon for a Danish newspaper. I did all sorts of things. 
mostly because it was fun, but also to protect myself. So if people were not interested in the stuff out on the street anymore, they would be like, oh yeah, but you can do illustrations or you can do, I can buy your painting. So I've been really like persistent. I just want to draw whatever it takes. <laughs> Quite the game plan early on to diversify and to have that in mind. Yeah, but it was, it wasn't like I was sitting with like a manager and, and making like <laughs> anything. I was just trying to make observations and see what worked and what didn't. I could sort of like feel the energy. I was like, we're onto something. People are interested in this. I'm not going to get this chance. I'm in my early 20s. I'm doing stuff that people think is interesting. I'm not going to like have that major breakthrough when I'm 46 or something. Like, oh yeah, have you seen that 54-year-old man? You never heard about him, but he's like the shit and he just invented stuff. It doesn't happen at that age. <laughs> well, for all of our listeners that are abroad, can you describe a little bit what the graffiti scene was like back in the time that you were walking the streets doing art? And were you going out as a crew? I mean, we read stories that you were trading magazines with other cities in Europe, and that's how you kind of shared your scene at the time. Yeah, there are like, there's the traditional graffiti that was invented in New York in the late 60s, 70s by small kids under 15 years old. They started to tack on the trains whenever they were riding it to go to school. And then at some point they rode on the outside of the train to make it more visible. And that movement came to Denmark in 84 and Europe in 83 and 84 through a couple of movies and a couple of books. And it spread like a wildfire all over the planet, but to begin with in Europe and also in Australia and a couple of other places. And the graffiti you see on the street is basically coming from that tradition. It's uh, tags, like a couple of letters, and it's, sometimes it's short for a graffiti crew, or sometimes it's the name of a single graffiti writer. But it, it hasn't evolved a lot since it came here. We have gotten better paint, and people have got better technique, but it's sort of the same thing. It's like when... People started to play football 200 years ago. It's the same rules. They were not as good at it, but it had like a certain charm. And now that people are like very good at it. When I got introduced to graffiti, it was like a sport. And uh, what attracted me to it was like, okay, here are some rules. We, this is how you navigate. This is what graffiti looked like. You need to do this and this and this. But at some point, you sort of like feel stuck in it. Okay, I need to add my own thing. But whenever you did something out of the box, people were like, that's not graffiti. And uh, <laughs> you need to like do traditional stuff. And then there was in the 70s, alongside the graffiti movement, there was an art scene in New York where there weren't a lot of galleries. So people started to do stuff on the street also. It was not graffiti. It was more like traditional art. You had pretty well-known names later on, like Keith Haring and Basquiat and Jenny Holzer and some other people who started to, because the streets and the city was completely run down, mm -hmm. so you could do whatever. That scene, before it got picked up by the galleries and they started to do paintings, it went on for perhaps 10 years and then it was gone for 15 years. And then in the 90s, people started to pick it up again. People were like, okay, we have the graffiti movement, but perhaps it could be fun to do other things out on the street. 
And I had noticed that people were pretty scared of graffiti because they felt like threatened by graffiti. They didn't understand it. So they were like, what is this? Uh, is this like gang related or... And basically, when you make graffiti, you're just communicating with other graffiti writers. You don't make it for like ordinary people. And then I thought, okay, and other people also thought, if we're doing stuff on the street, we might as well do something that everyone, like let other people in, because it's such a fun way to move around the city. You can see all these small traces here and there, and, and you can communicate like other types of messages you can actually do political stuff or you can do whatever something about love or food or whatever comes to your mind and so i picked up on that a couple of my friends have already started and because we came from a graffiti background we have already crossed that bridge where it's like okay we know it's illegal we're gonna do it anyway because we think we have something to add to the city and if we ask for permission no one is gonna give it to us Everything outside is either road signs or commercials. So you need to pay. It's not like a democratic city. It's only if you have money, you can put stuff up outside. And we were like, we don't have any money, but we got something to say also. And I had been to a couple of galleries in Copenhagen and they were deliberately hidden from the audience. It was like in an old warehouse and you couldn't find it and When you got there, people looked at you angry. It was like, oh, you don't have any money or you got the wrong clothes on. And I was like, this is like a, such a bad scene. <laughs> I feel left outside. And so I was like, okay, let's turn it around. Instead of the audience have to come to the art, let's turn it around and bring the art out to the streets and bring it to the people. So it's actually at their front door. And perhaps they don't like it. Perhaps they have some sort of art revelation. And I also wanted to show people that it was a way of, like whenever I'm in a new spot in a new city, that's the way I navigate. I can see, okay, I've been here before. I've seen that graffiti. It's a very easy way of uh, finding your way around. And all of a sudden when we started to do stuff on the street, and then they weren't afraid of it anymore. Mm. They were like, oh yeah, we're part of this. I get it. In the beginning, people were like, what is this? Is it like a commercial? And After a while, they were like, okay, we get it. It's a new way of seeing the city. And then I think there were a couple of years, and I think that's the case in many uh, new art movements. There are a couple of years where there's a lot of experimenting and people do whatever. They don't call it anything. Everything feels pretty free. And then all of a sudden, people are like, oh yeah, that movement is called this. And this is what they do. Street art is posters, stickers, stencils, This is Banksy, this is blah, blah, blah. And as soon as that happened, the whole first generation of street art artists in Copenhagen, they stopped overnight. They were like, okay, <laughs> the fun part is over where we can dictate and find out what this is and just we don't need to call it a name or anything. Because that's the main reason we didn't run away from graffiti because we still painted it, but we needed to have like a space where we there weren't any rules where we could just make a street kitchen or whatever we felt like. And as soon as the street art movement also had the rules, then everyone was like, okay, we're out of here. This was not <laughs> the point of it. And then there was like a second generation who picked up on it and was like, okay, we like street art because it has certain rules and we can make stencils and stickers. And But I was never part of that. How do you view the street art scene today? 
The street art scene has kind of disappeared. It turned into a mural scene. People started to paint these huge murals. And in the beginning, most people in the street art scene came from the graffiti background. But now you have a lot of people who have never been part of the traditional graffiti environment. They start out by painting huge murals. And some people are super good at it, but it's kind of like a whole different movement. I don't know how they're doing at the moment (laughs) with all the corona thing, because it was a movement where everyone was traveling a lot. Mm. People were traveling to these festivals. And I've been a part of a couple of festivals where you like go to a city and then you're like 10 artists and everyone gets a big house to paint on and people can paint super photorealistic. I don't really know about the stuff they paint. Sometimes it's really weird, but they're really good at actually painting a bird or whatever they paint. (laughs) Well, just on that, is it true that you pivoted from painting letters to characters because it was more affordable and you didn't have to spend as much money on paint? Oh, yeah, yeah. You can choose when you start out painting graffiti. A lot of graffiti writers, especially early on, like 20 years ago, they stole their paint. But you could only buy like the good paint in a couple of stores and you could not steal it there because that's where it all the graffiti writers bought the paint. So you could basically only steal like the bad paint. But I was never into stealing. That was not my thing. I mean, I was into drawing. I enjoyed painting a big wall. And that's that's the reason I paint graffiti. So I needed to come up with another way of getting paint. And then in Copenhagen, you can there are all these places where people put their trash. And sometimes you could find some bucket paint and... Then I could find some bucket paint and I could afford like one spray can. And then I needed to come up with a way of painting that. And it's sort of stuck. So when I paint now, I use a limited amount of colors, even though I can afford more colors now. Because I started out by painting only two or three colors, I I kept on doing that in some of the artworks that I do now. That idea of having a form of dogma to your approach in art. Yeah. I'm fascinated by that because that also extends into, for example, your paper folding, tearing technique. Yeah. Um, Is that correct that you don't use scissors, you don't use glue? Yeah, I don't. I I use like a a Stanley knife a couple of times. But yeah, it's sort of when you have every possibility in the world, when you have every color you can use, then it just becomes what you need to have limitations. When I came up with all those rules, I thought about in school, whenever you had to like write an essay in school, if you had a subject, if the teacher gave you a subject, it was much easier. Write about your summer holiday. If they were like, write whatever, everyone just stopped and was like, I don't know what to write. Write about your dog. My dog, okay. <clears throat> so it's a very, when I do jobs for other people, it's kind of simple. They're like, can you make this t-shirt? I'm like, okay. And I come up with things. But uh, when I have to do my own things for an exhibition or just for fun, I need to have certain limitations. When I do the folded drawings, if I could do whatever, use every color, use, then it's a totally different project. And I like the idea. When you keep things simple, people can relate to it. People are like, I could do that. I have those materials at home. When they begin to do it, they discover, okay, it's pretty hard to do it, but they can still see the road ahead. They can still see, okay, I have the materials if I keep on practicing. So it's also a way of letting people in and and making it easier for people to also draw. Because that's another part of what I do. I 
I'm not an art teacher. I've never worked in an art school or anything, but I like to spread the joy of drawing. And you cannot do that if every time people see my stuff and they're like, yeah, but he has like big studio, a hundred assistants. He has this special kind of paint that I can't afford. He has all these things. If they can see, okay, he's just sitting at his kitchen table and he's got like a bad pencil and a bad piece of paper, but it looks funny. Then people can get inspired. And that's why also kids in school do the stuff that I do. It's pretty easy to teach. Like the teachers are like, okay, so this week we're going to do folded drawings like this guy. And they can pretty easy do it. And you've made coloring books and, and other Coloring and- books, all these things. So I try to keep it simple. And it's funny, but I, I think it's also because I remember meeting some graffiti painters from South America. They didn't have any money. But for them, it was very important to use like every color in the world because that was the main goal. And I was like, okay, for me, it's the other way around. I can afford every color in the world. For me, it's about not using it. I can afford not to use it. It's not my goal. It's not my goal. I don't, it, I just noticed it. I was like, okay, because you don't have a lot of money, that's your main goal to like make it look like a big jungle painting. And they were just staring at me. I was like, are you only using two colors? But you can afford three colors. (laughs) I was like, yeah, but that's the point. Well, coming from the background that you've had and entering the formal art scene without necessarily the same education or rites of passage that the others had and having an aesthetic that is perhaps more accessible, did you sense that there was any sort of clash with entering the art world? The Yeah, of course, because I didn't go to the art academy, but there was never a conflict or anything. I thought from the beginning that it was very important that I made my own thing. Also because there was there's a freedom in just making your own things that I don't have to think about whether it's art or illustration or design or anything like that. I felt in the 90s that people were very much into different groups. If you were an artist, you didn't make design. Or if you were an illustrator, you could not make poems. You just stuck to what you did. And I was like, this is so boring. When you draw, you can draw on everything. So I tried deliberately to ignore whether it was art or anything. I didn't want to think about it. I still don't think about that. I'm just like, this is the job. If people have like an art experience by looking at it, it's good. If they just laugh at it because it's like a joke, it's good. If it feels like a hobby thing that they can color it, it's good. It's fine by me. But the art world is, I don't know. It's When you come from graffiti, the reason why graffiti is not called art is because the graffiti world has never seek the, you don't need the art world to accept you. And when the art world can see these guys, they don't want our accept, then we're not going to call it art. (laughs) We're not going to give them any medal because they choose to be outside. Then it's not art. And I think, like, what is more art than, like, your 14-year-old boy? You're so full of energy. You just want to paint all over everything. It's like a cave painter. It's like the original form of art. But the art world's just, uh, they've shut the door. And it's fine by me. I don't care about that and the same thing with my more like art career i don't really need that i'm not like sitting at home and like why am i not having a show at this museum and 
I want that medal and, and all of that because if people buy my things, then I know that somebody likes it and that's it's more important to me. But you must feel vindicated that you've taken your own path and you have been very much acknowledged by the art world. I mean, you've held exhibitions in a lot yeah, of yeah. esteemed galleries and yeah. museums. Yeah, yeah, and that's why I also have the privilege of just sitting here and being relaxed about it. It's like, oh, I don't care about it. <laughs> of course I care about it. I mean, you care about what people say. If I was like a total outsider, I, kn- I know these artists in the art world who have great success selling their stuff, but they have never made a show at a high-end gallery or been in a museum, and they're like craving for that acceptance. And uh, I can be more relaxed about that. So yeah, it's it's bullshit, but I don't know. The world is moving so fast that people are always looking for some sort of direction. And if you look confident and you're like, this is how we do it, people are going to follow. People are like, oh, that's the way we do it. And I found out that the art world now is not like... 10 years ago or 20 years ago, it's moving so fast with social media, with corona, <laughs> with everything. So you just need to tell yourself, if it feels like a good idea, you just need to go through with it. And you're just like, okay, I'm going to do it like this. And then people are going to accept it like, okay, yeah, that's the way you do it. <laughs> well, you mentioned social media and I'm fascinated what your relationship is like with social media because you've very successfully leveraged Instagram, for example. And I think it obviously suits your prolific nature to be able to post regularly and gain a huge following worldwide. But I'm just fascinated what your relationship with social media is. With with Silicon Valley. (laughs) Uh, Like everyone else is like a hate, love, hate relationship. I'm also looking too much at my phone. It's addictive. But in the beginning, I looked at Instagram Somebody mentioned it to me. Oh, you should be on Instagram. It was kind of like a new app. And I was like, okay. When I did stuff on the street, my philosophy was I wanted to show my artworks where the people were. People are out on the street. So that's where your art is going to be. But all of a sudden, people were not out on the street. Or they were out on the street, but they were looking at their phone. I was like, okay, we're going to go there. We're going to follow people. (laughs) And uh, so I looked at Instagram and I was like, it's a pretty small screen on a phone. I could do small drawings. If you paint a big mural, it could be amazing in real life, but on a small screen, it doesn't look like much. But if I drew like a small insect on a tiny piece of paper, people could see it much more easily and they would be like, oh, crazy insect and i'm like okay it took two seconds to do so i tried to adapt and do drawings that fit for the small screen and then it was also like a perfect way of experimenting some artists they're like okay i'm gonna do 20 artworks i'm only gonna show five of them i'm only gonna show the five best of them but i like that people can see the whole process also the bad drawings, also the experiments, the drawings that lead to new drawings. I don't care about if I do like a bad drawing on Instagram because I know I can do another one the next day. Then it adds up and then you're not afraid to do stuff. You're not like, oh no, I'm having a bad day. It's like, okay, I'm having a bad day. I'm going to put it out. And sometimes you put it out on Instagram and people really like it. They're like, whoa. And then you're like, completely confused because you thought it was a really bad drawing so you can never really quite figure it out so i tried to embrace it i'm 
fascinated while I have you just to talk a little bit about your perception of Danish culture. Yeah. Because your work very much deals with observational, often comical views of everyday life. And so yeah. I was curious kind of what you most admire about Danish culture and what perhaps you would most like to change. Oh, Danish culture. Well, Danes think a lot of times that this is the best place in the world and uh, we're always the best at everything. <laughs> and and we're not. Um, it is a very quiet place compared to other places in the world. We sort of created a society that is pretty safe. We get an education for free. People are not starving. Or we have poor people here, but it's kind of like, that's a big middle class in Denmark. But even if it's going in the wrong direction, people still believe that everything is cool. And But we live in a society that needs to change. I mean, the planet is falling apart. We have some big changes ahead if we want to stay here. But there is a sense here in Denmark that if we just shut our eyes. We're a small nation. It doesn't matter if we have five cars each because... If everyone gets a car in China, then <laughs> then we're completely fucked. So we don't need to change anything. And that's kind of like the worst thing. But it's also a, a conflict you have everywhere in the world. It's a conflict between generations. You have the young generation who realize that this cannot go on for very much longer. And then you have the old generation who also like wants to change, but they cannot imagine having to live without a car or we're not allowed to have a summer house, or we're not allowed to eat meat 10 times a day. So the things that are going on in Denmark is sort of like going on everywhere. But I like Denmark. Um, I can mostly compare it to other Scandinavian countries. It's much more relaxed than Denmark. When you go to Stockholm and places like that, it's very uptight, and you're not allowed to do anything. So they go here to Copenhagen to relax and get drunk in the afternoon and The locals here are like, okay. <laughs> Spot the Swedes. Yeah, or the Norwegian, like, middle-aged men on a Tuesday at 12, completely pissed, and everyone's like, okay. <laughs> uh, but that's, like, the good thing about Copenhagen also, that there's room for a lot of different people. What did you learn from your nine years of doing a weekly comic strip for Politik and Denmark's leading daily newspaper? Um It's a very good exercise to have like a weekly deadline. And it was very, very tough in the beginning because I needed a job. And then I knew somebody who worked at the newspaper, I think. I had a little tiny flat, no money. And I sat down and I think I did like 60 cartoons in two or three days. The drawings were pretty simple. And I thought they were all funny. But they weren't. I think there were like three or four of them. <laughs> so every, everyone could do it, basically. But then I handed them to the newspaper and they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, they're super good. You can, um, oh, they, I, they didn't say that. Perhaps they said some of them are good. <laughs> a few of them are okay. You can do it like once a week, you can do a drawing. And I was super disappointed because I needed the money. I was like, I need to do it every day because I got no money. <laughs> But pretty quickly, I realized that it was super good that I only did it once a week. Because to have that deadline every day, it would just ruin your life. Nobody is funny once a day. 
like really funny once a day. You can get lucky and be funny twice a week, <laughs> but once a day, it's impossible. So yeah, I think the main thing I learned when I did the cartoon is where inside my mind my ideas are, like how to get ideas. I spent a lot of time in the beginning. I couldn't come up with anything. It took me days. And then at some point I found a path. <laughs> I was like, first you need to think about this. Then you need to think about this. And then you open the door and in that room, that's where the idea is. And I still use that. I don't know quite how I do it, but when I pick up a sketchbook and I need to come up with an idea, I think I use the same technique as back then. And I remember a particular drawing that I did where I discovered that way of creating an idea. And I was just like high for a day or something like that. And I was running around in my living room, like celebrating, like I scored a goal in the Champions League final. I was like, I came up with a good idea because I was so anxious every week. I was like, oh no, that was my last good idea. I can never. And that's what most people who make a living of to come up with like good designs or good ideas. Whenever they get a good idea, they feel anxious. Like, was that the last one? Can I come up with an idea that is equally good? I don't have a lot of ideas right now for drawings or exhibitions. Actually, I have none. I use them as soon as I get them. I was like, okay, this is a good idea. I draw it. So I don't have anything laying around, but I know inside my mind that I can create something. When I go home today, I, if I haven't done anything, like five minutes before I leave the studio, I can sit down, I can do a sketch or whatever, and then I can do the folded drawing when I get home or something like that. Sometimes I get stuck, but I know that it's not the end of the world. I know that the next day I can move on. And if I get really stuck, I try to do something else. I'm like, okay, you're stuck. You cannot come up with anything, but you got 10 emails you need to answer. Do that, or you can do the dishes, or you can just keep going instead of laying on the floor and crying. Just do whatever, and then you can still feel like you actually did something good. Um, so, yeah, that's how I work. During that time you were at Politigan was obviously the Muhammad drawing scandal <laughs> yeah. of 2005, 2006, which made things very interesting Yeah, with Yulan's person yeah, at yeah. the center of it. Did you get entangled in that in any way? A mm, little bit. It was not the same newspaper, but they shared the same address. It's a, quite a different newspaper, the one that made the Muhammad drawing. But for two or three years or more, Perhaps after that whole conflict, whenever I went traveling and I introduced myself, if it was an exhibition or people I work with, I was like, yeah, I do this and that. And I work for a Danish newspaper, not that newspaper. <laughs> I had to say that every time because everyone, every time he said, I do drawings for a newspaper in Denmark, everyone was like, what? <laughs> I was like, not that one. Yeah, there was a big conflict and the Danish embassy in Syria was burned down. On the very same day that it was burned down, I had an art opening. And my art opening was about the relationship between Danish people and Muslim people because it was a big subject back then. Wow. So I had to go to my exhibition and look at all my artworks and see, could it be controversial? I mean, if you really want to misunderstand it, you could do that. But I had to go through it all. And there were so many things happening. And I remember speaking to CNN, had a TV crew here, and there was like a research guy calling me up 
from CNN, and he was like, "Oh yeah, here you have this exhibition. I don't know anything about Denmark. Could you explain <laughs> to me what's going on?" So I spoke with him for like an hour or something like that, and gave him my version of what was going on. And I don't know what I said and how much actually affected how they showed Denmark, but. Yeah, I was a little bit involved. <laughs> well, just finishing off, I wondered if there's anything that you haven't yet taken on in your art career that is still on the to-do list beyond the fact that I imagine, given that you're so good at documenting everyday life, that when you are 70 or 80, that you'll be taking us on that journey as well, I'm guessing? Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Like My luck is that right now I'm in my 40s. I have a family. I have kids. When you make art about that, you have a lot of potential buyers. You have a lot of people who can relate to it. People, no matter what age they have, they think about when they were young and healthy. So nobody wants to see paintings of old people <laughs> hanging on the wall. They want like beautiful women. They want stuff they can relate to. That It's horrible to have kids. It's also beautiful to have kids when they're gone. When they moved away from home, you miss them terribly. So you think about when they were little and your kids were fascinated by you. You were the god. You could do anything. Dad is cool. And you knew you were not cool, but you could open the can of Nutella or whatever. And they were like, wow, he's so strong. So that's your focus point. And I've known, I actually know this from research. I made a an exhibition called From the Cradle to the Grave, where I drew like a hundred paintings and drawings from people getting born until they died. And I had this casket in the middle of the room with a doll in it, a dead guy. Actually, my sister did some of it and she made the hair. And when she showed me the doll, she was like, look, I did a portrait of dad. It's his, it's his hair. I was like, man, man there's a, <laughs> it's a dead guy in the gallery and it's dad. And I was like, wow. So that, yeah, that was pretty funny. But afterwards, I could see that all the paintings of drawings of the old people, they didn't sell. Wow. I've tried that twice. So people buy drawings of like young people and people in the mid, like up until 40, 50. So it's going to be an experiment when everything goes downhill to paint that. Um, but I want to do that. I mean, I don't know if I can paint anything else. Like if you want to make something funny, the easiest thing is to make fun of yourself, uh, to laugh at life. And it's not funny when you only laugh at other people. And it's being a bully. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm counting on, like, continuing to draw my life or my surroundings. I don't draw myself. It's not self-portraits, but sort of, like, common experiences. That's going to be fun to see where it ends. <laughs> well, we look forward to following along, and I thank you for joining us today, Husbik. Now, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Nordic Portraits is a series by me, Ben Catford. The music was composed by Nina Liu, and the visual identity by Copenhagen-based studio Frame. To learn more about today's guest and all the others from this season visit nordicportraits.net. You can also follow us on Instagram, and remember to rate and subscribe on iTunes so we can get the word out. Thanks for listening.